Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today again for another athlete interview and in the great words of a okay commentator, boy oh boy wowie, do we have an amazing guest for you today on a celebratory episode, our 100th ever guest here at Off The Podium, Carmen Martin, Taekwondo world champion from 2013, three-time Olympian and our first ever taste of the sport of Taekwondo on this show. And this is a fantastic, fantastic interview. A very honest Carmen goes into a lot of detail about the sport in Australia, some of the issues faced by Taekwondo athletes in this country and kind of what it's going to take really to overcome a lot of that. It's it's really the, the crux of this interview, really honest and an in-depth account of what is happening in the sport, particularly over the last 20 or so years. As sort of is discussed, a lot of people probably remember Taekwondo for the first time at the Sydney Olympics with Lauren Burns and Daniel Trenton both coming away with medals and very exciting to see this new sport at the Olympics. And you would think that would spur on greater and bigger and better things in the sport in the country, but has not been the case at all. So Carmen, very honest and open about that situation. She talks about how she got into the sport. She's basically from the first family of Taekwondo in Australia. Both her brother and sister are also Olympians. So uh, an incredible chat here. Also goes into detail about her three Olympic experiences, how she very nearly made it a fourth back in Athens, and also giving her the distinction of being the 100th guest, we may save that towards the end and uh, really give her a boost towards a tilt towards Paris 2024. So here is our very great chat with a three-time Australian Olympic taekwondo athlete, Carmen Martin. So excited for today's guest on Off the Podium. We always get excited, of course, when we can speak to an athlete from a sport that we've never covered before on the show, and we have never covered the sport of Taekwondo. And today, we're going to tick it off the list. Our guest today is a three-time Olympian, a former world champion in the sport, and really comes from what is called, I guess, the first family of Taekwondo in Australia. And I'm very excited to learn a little bit more about her Olympic journey and everything else in between. Please welcome to the show, Carmen Martin. Carmen, first of all, welcome to Off the Podium. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's exciting to talk about, as I said, a sort of a new sport we've never covered before. And I mean, look, as an Australian and I guess many Australians, our first real taste of this sport came back in Sydney. We all remember watching Lauren Burns, of course, winning gold back then and sort of the, the memories of that. But I mean, your journey obviously started a little bit before Sydney, Carmen, kind of like what what drew you into Taekwondo? How did you get started in the sport? Well, I started when I was about eight years old and did not have a choice. My father, he absolutely loves Taekwondo. Um, both my parents are originally from Poland and he started Taekwondo with his brother there. And when he came to Australia and we were born, we pretty much 
were forced into it. So by we, I mean myself and my siblings. I have an older sister and a younger brother too who all do the sport. Which all kind of worked out for you. You're all Olympians, right? So kind of the parents pushing you to kind of do something, sort of did, you know, the family business, like literally pushed you through it and uh, look at look at what you've achieved. <laughs> yeah, definitely. In, um, in retrospect, you know, we, we are very grateful Growing up in a taekwondo family can be a little bit, a little bit tough, um, especially with that sort of Eastern European um, mentality from our father, who was, you know, quite, quite stern and hard on us. I guess in terms of just pushing us, and um, we did have to do a lot of extra taekwondo sessions at home as well as our standard group classes. Um, but it paid off, and I think once we were older and we were able to to see the benefit for ourselves and. I think choose for ourselves to continue in the sport, then things really um, became a lot more, I think just positive in the sense that we realized that sport's really special and it took us around the world and it kept us really close as siblings. And you know, that's something that we're, we're very grateful for. Like, I guess as a kid, you, you can be a little bit lazy and you'd rather play computer games as I did. I want to sleep and nap, <laughs> watch TV. Not for kids, right? Oh, am I meant to grow out of that phase? Oh, that's awkward. Uh, maybe one day. <laughs> but it's it must be interesting sort of then in a sport like taekwondo, which obviously, say, during the 90s was just on the cusp of making an Olympics in Sydney. I mean, do you sort of grow up playing other sports with maybe Olympic aspirations? Was the Olympics only something that sort of as you progressed in taekwondo that sort of became on the, the horizon then? Yeah, so I I loved playing basketball in primary school and in high school I played volleyball. So my sister and I played for our high school team, which was really competitive in volleyball. And we also, um, I played in the, the state team uh, in volleyball, which was so much fun to be able to do a uh, team sport compared to taekwondo, which is an individual sport. And yet didn't have the aspirations to to be an Olympian at all as a child. There was more, uh, once I knew that I had to do Taekwondo, then I did want to be a world champion. And it's really funny because our old head instructor, uh, he would tell me that I was going to be a world champion one day. And my father would be like, you can be a world champion one day. So I was just like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a world champion one day. Like I just, <laughs> I took a, you know, you can call it being being naive or just having, you know, pretty amazing positive reinforcement. But um, yeah, I think I was empowered from a young age to go for the top level in the sport, and I didn't really see any real barriers in in doing that. Which I believe you made the senior team when you were 14, which if I'm not mistaken, doing my maths, that would have been about the year 2000, right? So you're kind of making that team the same year that Taekwondo is debuting at the Olympics. Is, is that right? Oh, gosh, that was 21 years ago. So, yeah, yeah, yeah you are spot on. I'm, I'm impressed with your um, with your research. So, yeah, I was, that's correct, 14 when I made my first senior Australian team and we travelled to Vietnam for the World Cup and I was like uh, probably about like six months before that I went on my first team overseas to the Korean Open as a junior and I was hooked like I thought that it was just the most incredible thing to be on an aeroplane go to a different country experience a completely different culture all these different foods go to the market go on these adventures and then to be able to do that on the senior team as well where you have like even more 
probably freedom, I was like, okay, I want to do this for as long as possible. That's incredible. And I mean, such a young age too, to kind of make it like in that, that sport, like, I mean, gosh, like you sort of set yourself those targets you're doing and you're 14 and you're sort of, you know, you're pretty much there already, aren't you? Well, it's in our sport. I think the females, their bodies develop a lot faster than, than males. Like at 14 years old, I was already 55 kilos and uh, fighting women. And I think that in terms of the power ratio, there isn't much difference in terms of a woman fighting a junior female. You can you can handle yourself. It is a little bit different when you compare a fully grown male fighting a, a young junior boy. Um, then that sort of power discrepancy in terms of the physiology of the body, it can be a bit of a wider a wider gap. Um, but also in saying that, our our sport and our club, um, the females punch on with the males in class. So we are we are fighting those older males and adult males. Obviously, they're looking after us to make sure they don't hurt us or kick us too hard. Um, but we were raised quite tough. And so as juniors, we could handle ourselves. And it's a great sport for that. Like you, you do build a lot of confidence because you train really hard and then you're able to transfer that to the competition day. In terms of you mentioned the weight there. Obviously, taekwondo is a sport where it's, it's say, not like swimming, where you're just going to choose, I'm going to be a freestyler, I'm going to be a breaststroker. Like, this is comes down to your weight and your physicality. Does that sort of, as you develop and you're sort of growing, and you obviously change divisions essentially throughout your career, like, does that come down to a coaching choice that a coach goes, okay, if you drop a bit of weight, you might be more competitive. If you put on a bit more weight, you might be competitive. I mean, kind of how is that handled as an athlete? Kind of like, how do you then kind of work out what you want to achieve by putting your body through the rigors of either putting on or sort of losing weight? Oh, that's, that's a great question. In in our sport, it's 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 changing in terms of families, coaches, parents are becoming a lot more educated in the weight division process and how to choose a weight division. Usually as a junior, it's recommended that you go with your growth spurt. You go and you just go into the next weight category until you sort of balance out and plateau. And then as the senior athlete, you can start choosing which divisions you want to compete in because maybe if you're taller, you may want to drop a couple of kilos and go in a, a slightly lighter weight division um, because then strategically you might have a, a tactical advantage because you've got a height advantage. Um, other, in other instances, you may find that you may have more of an opportunity in a heavier weight division. So then you'll put on more muscle mass and then explore a heavier weight division or do a little bit of water loading. Um, so those conversations uh, I did have with both, you know, my coaches and my parents. As a junior, I did go through a growth spurt and I did start having to cut weight and that was not nice at all to do that during high school. You know, to be able to, you know, have all your calories and be able to learn, especially through your, your VCE, um, is really important. So to have that extra challenge of having to cut weight, um, you know, made that whole experience a lot more difficult. It is an, an added layer. Uh, you, you do, you have a choice if you if you want to take that advantage and you can explore. And I encourage like all athletes within our sport to explore, but if possible, leave that until you're more developed in your senior years. You don't necessarily, you don't have to be cutting weight as a junior. Definitely you don't, you wouldn't consider that as a cadet being even younger. 
And when you are ready to explore different weight divisions, connect with professionals. So dietitians, sports dietitians to help you form good habits from a younger age, which is very, very important. And then to have that support, that uh, emotional support to help you manage uh, your weight division and to make sure that you've got the, the safe strategies in cutting weight. In terms of the physical aspect of it, I, I do love sort of when we chat to our, you know, combat athletes, kind of the, the different sort of methodologies and the training you've got to do in different sports. I mean, is, ta- is Taekwondo kind of similar in a way to, say, a boxing where the agility aspect is obviously so key to it as well as the physical strength? I mean, you, you've got to, you know, dodge around a little bit on the mat. you kind of got to, you know, use a fancy footwork and kind of all that sort of stuff. And can you do things like like a Harry Garcia, like do some ballet or something along those lines to help with the, the agility? I mean, kind of how's that balance with, say, agility versus strength going into training? So you need all aspects, and it's great that, that Harry did that with um, with ballet, and we've incorporated some of that maybe more with our core work and our stretching and flexibility and mobility. And as an athlete and as a coach, you're pushing the boundaries in terms of what can you learn, what can you benefit. And when you're at the top level, you're trying to find out ways, okay, what can give me the edge? Or how can I learn from a different sport that maybe um, is outside of the box in how our sporters always approach things. And I went to university because after my first Olympics uh, in Beijing, we were based at the AIS and there was next to no information about strength and conditioning or sports science in Taekwondo. So I was like, okay, this is a big hole. I want to learn what's specific to our sport and how we can be the best and how we can be an actual professional sport and a professional athlete. And you need all those aspects. You learn about the different um, systems in your body and you realise that Taekwondo is a sport which is really complex because you've got your anaerobic, anaerobic system. So you need explosive short bursts, but then you also need a longer fitness because we have three rounds of two minutes, but all our fights are done in one day. Mm. And when you're competing at the World Championships, you can have six to seven fights in the one day. Wow. So you need to address all those systems. You definitely need your agility. So we do agility training. We do our sprints. We do hill sprints, stair work. Um, we do our weight training. So depending on how far out we are from a competition and we're periodizing, we've got a good strength base, but then we go into explosive powerlifting as well as plyometric jumps. And then from there, you have to also do all your taekwondo sessions, uh, which is, you know, technique work, ring management, uh, fighting scenarios, as well as the, the full contact fighting days as well. And the strategy side of things too, is that something that uh, comes down to, you're talking about having all those bouts in one day that, okay, <laughs> this is how I, I'm, I'm an aggressive fighter. I'm going to go for the attack or I'm defensive. Or again, does it always come down to who you're, you're fighting against? This, this is a more attacking competitor. I need to be more defensive or kind of counter them with that. Like, does it all come from the coach and different levels at different competitions? Again, this is like such a, there are so many layers to this question. Uh, you'll find that some fights, it, it comes down to your performance state. So how focused you are and you're going to be purely in the fight and purely reactive and you're going to be fighting your best self and you make decisions based on what's happening in real time, what's unfolding in front of you. 
And then there are other fights which do need more strategy, which maybe if you're coming up against a, a very experienced opponent, you need one or two tactics to possibly outsmart them or shut down their game and shut down a strength of them so you're not going to be scored on something that they're really good at. And as an athlete, you, you need to take a level of responsibility and autonomy in, in learning about your athletes, uh, learning about particular trends, uh, having a sort of your own database on which countries have got particular styles or they might be like good at a particular kick. And then you've got your particular athletes which have got their own distinct style. And then you, and you also work with your coach and then your coach and yourself will come up with a game plan. And then it's about rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. So there's definitely, I think you can, like there's, there's different styles of, of fighting and then being a little bit, you might find that you're a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more defensive, but then naturally, but then that can change depending on the fight, depending who you're up against and then did, the nature of the fight. Yeah. Did you have sort of a, a style that you were particularly like, were you more aggressive, were you more defensive, kind of does it, has it sort of changed throughout your career? Yeah, it's um, changed throughout my career. Probably growing up in my earlier senior years, I was more of a defensive fighter and I had to build up my strength and confidence to be more of a well-rounded fighter and have more confidence going in on the attack. And as the sport has changed and the style um, has changed, especially because of the introduction of the electronic um, shields and head guards, then everyone's style changed and has evolved um, over the years um, globally because of that. So you're always finding new innovative ways to score points and control the, the match itself, um, even just depending on technology. Because the thing that's amazing about Taekwondo and so many of these combat sports is that I guess you can go all out there and kind of just score the points, but then all of a sudden within the dying seconds, what, a, a, a kick to the head and all of a sudden, boom, like you can sort of <laughs> take it right at the end. I mean, you famously did that with your World Championship win. So, I mean, like kind of it's it's kind of one of these sports where you could probably be, you know, either I can imagine like, oh, I'm just going to be tactical here and just go for the points or just, ah, bugger it, five seconds ago, boom, let's go for the, the knockout or whatever you refer to it in, <laughs> in Taekwondo. Yeah, that's what makes our sports sport really exciting. And um, with the different point systems, so like our body shots is one point. Um, if you do a turning body shot, that's an extra two points. That's four points in total. Our headshots is three points and our turning headshots, five points now. So the scores can change quite rapidly. And you see those fights, you see someone that is up the whole match. And then in the last 30 seconds, they either start freaking out or they gas out, their legs give way and you just see their opponent come at them and pick it, pick them off point and point and point and point at a time. And there were quite um, a lot of fights uh, on at the recent Olympics where they were won in the final two seconds. Which it must be a pretty amazing feeling then if you can kind of land the spinning head kick in the dying seconds to it. Like, I mean, that's like hitting a home run, kicking a goal after the siren, like kind of these little moments where the adrenaline just must be pumping through you so much. It, it is. And I am very blessed, I guess, in terms of the way that you imagine winning the world championships probably as a, as a child, like with the stands full going crazy your versing korea which is like the home the homeland of taekwondo so everyone that comes out of korea is awesome and you win in the final seconds so i think i had maybe seven seconds on the scoreboard left when i landed like a 
turning head kick to the face. And when I reflect back on that, it was just such a beautiful moment because I was so completely in the fight. I don't even remember. It wasn't even a thought. I didn't even think about doing that kick. It just came out. And um, my grandmaster head instructor from um, my club would say that, you know, when you reach that master level, it's not about seeing something and then doing it. It's doing something and then you see it. And that's exactly how it was. So I had done the kick and then I saw that I had done the kick. So it was, yeah, it, it was a pretty, um, pretty epic moment in my it's career. Just, it's amazing. I mean, you, you were the first ever world champion in the sport of Taekwondo, which is, is crazy to think that, that we had an Olympic champion before we had a, a world champion. And it obviously took a bit of time. And I mean, you were saying before though, that kind of, that was your goal initially. It was, to, hey, I want to be a world champion. So, I mean, I can imagine at that moment too, you're all of a sudden, hey, I've realized this dream that I had since I got into this sport. Yeah, and I remember just laughing. Like you think you're gonna, you know, get emotional and cry, but I was, I just, I knew, I knew I would just fall on the ground. Like that's sort of like you are, you're exhausted because you are floored by it because it's 20 years worth. It's not just the six fights that I had that day. It wasn't the, you know, eight weeks and months and months of preparation. It was 20 years worth of getting to that point. And I was laughing because I was like, you, you did it. Like, and I knew I could do it, but then you're like, but you actually did it. And this is just hilarious. Um, and, you know, awesome, like, go you. And I'm just, I'm just so happy because like, I knew it could be done. And it's so important that it, it needs to be shown that it can be done, especially for Australian athletes, because we're so removed from the rest of the world in terms of our geography and, that is a barrier within itself, within our sport, because you need to get overseas and punch on with the other countries. And it took so much work and a lot of uh, sacrifice and, you know, personal investment, money from our, our parents, our family members, our friends and community and our club that would fundraise for us so we could get overseas and we could show that it is possible. And even during the time when we, we didn't have a, a national federation, we didn't have a national program. It was just a group of us kids that, got overseas, you know, sometimes we were lucky enough to have one of our coaches over with us. Sometimes we weren't, so we had to run around coaching each other. So it's like whoever, ha whoever happened to lose a fight that day was responsible for coaching everyone. And it was insane, but so awesome because we were thrown in the deep end and were forced to learn. And throughout all of that, knowing that it is still possible if you're going to be tenacious enough, resilient enough, and you just keep stepping towards it, keep whatever is thrown at you, just just keep working towards it, um, you'll get there eventually. The thing I'd love to learn sort of about that, sort of that journey, is you obviously very nearly made Athens in 2004, uh, so close to that. But how much did the sport change in Australia between Sydney and Athens after Lauren winning gold, Daniel getting a silver as well? Obviously, you know, mm. debut sport, two medals straight away. Were there increase in participation? Did you kind of see a real change in, in funding and things along those lines sort of in that initial period after Sydney in the lead up to nearly making the Athens Olympics? Uh, how, well, maybe we need to extend your program to, to two hours. Um. <laughs> we asked the deep questions apparently today. I've saved them all for you, Carmen. I like this. <laughs> oh, amazing. I'm, I'm happy to share. 
Look, I'm all about honesty and being brutally honest. After Sydney, so much investment was put into those athletes who competed in Sydney. They didn't really have an underlying program, and but the expectation was still there for athletes, you know, probably even more so like, you know, Australia's medals, so now everyone should just be medalling, but it's going to take time to build up the next wave of athletes. And they got together and ended up forming a, a high-performance program in Melbourne, but the, the, co the culture was, was really, really poor. The leadership uh, was very shady. They were picking and choosing who they wanted to send on teams, who they wanted to give funding to. Um, they wanted that full com commitment to a centralised program, even though everyone's club programs were better. They wanted that control. And, you know, if you didn't join, then you were blacklisted. And so that was really, really difficult for a lot of athletes and it put off a lot of athletes. So that's when our sports started to, to lose their, um, their depth. Um, after Athens, one of the athletes, which, which was um, uh, Daniel Trenton, went into a head coaching role, but I don't, he didn't, and he admits this himself, he, he did it very poorly. Um, he maybe didn't have the, the education behind him uh, or the mentoring to be able to deliver that in a way which wasn't a very old school authoritarian approach. Um, a lot of athletes were, were demeaned, emotionally broken, um, forced to move from their state. So they, they lost that social support that's really important when you're developing as a young athlete. Um, and again, we lost a whole, because of that sort of to toxic culture, we, we lost another tier of um, athletes that we lost even more depth. And then our sport lost, uh, it's because money was being embezzled from our sport. We lost our national um, federation status which mean we had no program at all and very little funding. And that's where we had to do a lot of fundraising ourselves. And again, we lost more athletes because there wasn't a clear future. You had to really love your sport and have a good club base where you had coaches that were willing to push you and bring you along and, and do some fundraising for you in order to enable you to still go overseas and work on your development. Um, and it started probably between 2008 and 2012. You know, even though we didn't have a national program, the athletes had the, the freedom to start to sort of travel and work back within, build up and work back within their coach, uh, their club and club environment and their coaches. And we just created our, our own high performance program. We were forced to do that. Um, and then, you know, 2013, you know, not only do we have my, my gold medal win, we had two athletes progress to the round of 16. We started to have even in 2000 and uh, probably 2009, like some athletes reached the, the quarterfinals. I made the quarterfinals in 2011. So it started to lift up again. Um, and then between 2012 and 2016, you know, coaches started to work together again and we we started to get more funding from the, the AIS or Ozsport at that time. And they wanted to give us, you know, national, uh, we, we had a national um, federation reinstated in terms of the recognition within um, Australia so we could get government funding again. But then the leadership defaulted into having coaches in positions again, which they weren't experienced 
in. They didn't, again, um, have the proper mentoring and just fell back on uh, bad habits in making programs exclusive, um, basing decisions on ego and um, athletes started to fall off again. And then we, once again, <laughs> have gone. This is a very long answer. It's, 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 um, I, I'm very sorry. intrigued. This is interesting. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we've gone back to that centralised program between um, uh, Rio and these recent Tokyo Olympics and they tried to force a lot of, you know, athletes in this model instead of having two sort of concurrent programs where athletes from club-based and those who want to do centralised programs can both be able to receive funding and and attention um, for for high performance. And it just just showed and, you know, we lost some more athletes again, which is is really, really sad. you know, sport isn't just about high performance, it's about providing young people with experiences which can enrich their lives, which can Mm. give them tools and skills which they can then use for the rest of their lives. Um, So they can be, you know, future leaders, future managers, future, like, uh, trainers or anything that they want to be that sport is, has given them instead of sport just breaking them and being unfair and unjust because, you know, the leadership hasn't done their job properly or they haven't realised they have had a very serious duty of care and you need to make sure that you're hiring the right people and those people are actually being being checked and they've got performance reviews. Like athletes have performance reviews all the time but the leadership hasn't had performance reviews for a very long time. You know, hopefully they're, they're looking at changing the, the culture and um, the coaching staff in the next cycle and building better team environments, building better underlying programs to give opportunities to everyone across Australia instead of just a select few. Um, so that has been the nature of the sport in Australia. I hope um, wow. your, listen- your listeners are still with us. No, look. Um, not my best um, shot at trying to articulate it all in a short <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> I, I have to say, like, it's, I mean, again, there's a whole other episode in that, Karma. We won't dwell on that. But, like, I just, it's, in all seriousness, it's fascinating to hear that because we've had many guests on the show who've kind of, you know, talked about certain aspects of their sport and kind of things that I feel are never really discussed. And we, we had a, a Canadian Nordic combined athlete on earlier this year who basically, it was kind of in order for us to have good athletes in this sport, mm-hmm. we need to have success on the world stage and to have success on the world stage, you need to have funding. You're not going to get that funding unless you bring home an Olympic medal. It's kind of, it's a vicious cycle, right? And like mm-hmm. what I find really fascinating about that is that Taekwondo has this like boom on the Olympic stage. Like many of us probably in Australia would not have known anything about this sport if it wasn't for Sydney 2000 and Lauren and what Daniel did. And yet, it kind of doesn't translate into what may be happening in other sports in the world for Olympics, if you know what I mean. So it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Like you could start your own podcast on this and kind of just you know have have you know weekly like a, a true crime podcast on the nature of taekwondo in Australia. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny you say that. Like I've spoken to a few um, athletes even across the world to to. Um, Potentially do a podcast one day and on, true, true stories, true crime stories of <laughs> Australia. Not not just in Australia, globally. Yeah, um, I'd listen. Yeah, there's, and it's not just our sport. And unfortunately, the more of this um, happens in lower profile sports, not lower profile like Olympic sports. So 
our sport, Taekwondo, is really popular in other countries and does get a lot of media coverage, does get a lot of funding and support, but unfortunately not in Australia. Like we're competing against the AFL and, and cricket um, and rugby, even though there are so many amazing sports and Australia is such a sporting country. Yeah. Um, but in, in order for us to be able to take it to the next level, we need people working within our organisation who understand how can we make this more commercial? How can we market our sport better? How can we potentially get to the level where athletes are professional athletes, like say in in um, the UK where they're getting a wage, they're getting their accommodation paid for, um, they're getting big money grants um, each time they win a medal overseas. That would be the ultimate, um, but we have a long way to go. Again, there's there's so much to unpack in that, which is just it's fascinating. This is again what always kind of interests me when it kind of learns this. I want to I want to touch on your your three Olympic experiences now. Um, make your debut in Beijing, go out mm-hmm. the quarterfinals, London. Now you make the semis. Now, explain to me how this generally works. Is this an Olympic thing or a Taekwondo thing? That I I would assume you lose a semifinal, mm-hmm. you're into a bronze medal bout. The two losing semifinals, but you've then got to go through basically a a repercharge preliminary, like, like it's a bit confusing. Like, I feel like do what they do in boxing. You lose a semifinal, you get a bronze medal. Like, don't make it confusing. Like, I, I, I don't understand repercharges in sport already, Carmen. So, but, I mean, how do you reflect, say, on, on London? Like, making a semifinals of an Olympic Games. You were talking before about the performances around that stage. There was mm-hmm. lots of people making the quarters. You're a year removed from winning a world championship. I mean, did you come out of that feeling all right? That, okay, I made the semis. Or was it disappointment that you didn't come away with a medal? Well, this whole repercharge fight off for bronze only happens at the Olympics. Wow. So okay. the World Championships and Grand Prix, when you do lose in the semis, you do still come away with a bronze medal and both right. sides of the draw have a bronze medal. So, yeah, it's tough. That's what makes the Olympics even more more ruthless. And, no, I was not fine and okay with <laughs> coming away from London semi-final with nothing. It was it was heartbreaking. Uh, you know, I had so many friends and family members come over to watch and to support. So when you step off the mats and it was right there and it was within your grasp and you come away with nothing, you're just so disappointed and embarrassed. And you, you have to then face these people that have this look of sadness in their eyes not that they're disappointed like of course they love you and they just don't want you to be upset but you can't help but carry that weight as an athlete and you feel that responsibility and you know that it was possible and it was because of your bad decision making that that didn't happen so you are fully responsible for that um but in saying that london helped me learn so much about myself and my game that I was able to take those lessons and implement them in Mexico to help me win the world championships. So when people say everything happens for a reason, that was probably one instance in my career which I was like, okay, if I wanted to win the world championships, then maybe I had to sacrifice the bronze medal at the Olympics in order to to do so. And I'm sure you, you take a world championship gold over an Olympic bronze, right? Like that's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to put it into perspective, um, you know, both I think Lauren Burns and uh, Daniel Trenton only had um, three fights at the Sydney Olympics. 
to to win gold and silver, whereas for the world championship. I had six fights hey. and everyone in the taekwondo, yeah, <laughs> everyone in the taekwondo world sort of gives more street cred um, to the world championships. Um, it definitely is the, the pinnacle of our sport and it, the world championships are less political. Uh, there are many great fighters who should be at the Olympics um, which aren't there because of what happens in the Olympic qualification process and their selection process for the Olympics. And also the, the weight divisions are cut down. So for the world championships, you would have eight weight divisions. For the Olympics, there's only four. Right. So and every country can only send two males and two um, females to compete in their continental championships. If they haven't qualified um, top six automatically, that's the only way more countries can qualify more athletes. It's always so interesting learning about these sort of, you know, how world champions. It's so fascinating in so many sports, like particularly these sports that like you're saying about the weight divisions. I mean, we've talked to many athletes who are world champions in an event that they can't be a world, uh, an Olympic champion because they just they won't have them and kind of bounce that. But yeah. I want to quickly ask, though, and apologies if I'm going to butcher her name, Nur Tatar from Turkey. Mm-hmm. Now, she knocks you out in the semis and then come mm-hmm. Rio, she knocks you out in the first round. Mm-hmm. Is, is this just like, you know, you just want to kick her even more after this <laughs> or is it like, is it just something else there? Like I can imagine like you in that unique sport where you're allowed to actually hit a person. So I don't know, does it spur you on more that if you ever fight her again, it's like, come on, stop beating me in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's tough and every, both fights were completely different. And, you know, I would say that... Um, in London, I changed my game plan. So it's almost like that saying, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So I was going really well in London. I'd won my first fight, my second fight. And in my third fight, I started to, instead of just focusing on my own mental state and being really, as I explained earlier in this program, a hundred percent focused, a hundred percent reactive to what was happening and making real life decisions. I started to change my focus to thinking about what she was going to do too much. And then I ended up taking in about four or five different coaching points from people around me. You know, the coach that was there on the day, my coaches in Melbourne, um, my sister, my partner. And so I had so much going on in my mind that I was trying to do and control in that match that I slipped out of purely being in the moment and just fighting my best fight. So in a sense, I had sort of, even though she's an amazing athlete and, you know, outrightly she uh, performed really well, but I felt like I gave her the fight a lot more because I changed my strategy and my approach. When it came to Rio, that whole preparation was so stressful and this is what's what's hard as an, as an athlete people that switch on to the TV and, and watch it live, they don't see what has happened in the four years before that, mm. you know, how many stresses, personal obstacles, politics that was in there, um, illnesses you had, injuries you had leading up to it. Um, London, I was in much more better physical form um, and mental form as well. Uh, Rio, there were a lot more personal battles um, between, I guess, uh, coaches and, and family members where there was a lot of uh, emotional conflict. Um, and I also had a, a major tendon injury in my top of my hamstring. So how that affected me was because we were a weight category sport, 
I couldn't put on the muscle mass that I needed to fight the bigger girls, which was my weight, the usual weight division for say the world championships was under 62 kilograms. When I fight, fight the Olympics, I had to fight under 67. So my division gets combined with the weight division above. London, I was weighing about like 65 kilograms. I was able to put on about three, three and a half um, kilos for Rio, I weighed 62.6. Wow. And I just didn't have that mass because I couldn't be doing those big um, compound, like bulky, heavy lifts of deadlifts and squats to build up that muscle mass because I couldn't put that amount of stress on, on my hamstring, on my tendon. So I had to balance that out with it being able to kick freely and still be able to do my Taekwondo training. Um, but it was still again uh, in terms of the strategy the fight and mentally we had a better game plan fighting um nur from from turkey the second time around um the scores were zero zero for the first two rounds and we focused on shutting down her game so first three rounds and the start of the third round it was still zero zero so at this point that's what we wanted to do we wanted to keep it the scores very close, zero zero or one one until the final seconds, and then go for it. That was the game plan, and I had lost my. I had a lapse in my my mental focus where I had taken a bit of coaching advice from someone in the stands that was sort of like part of my team, but not my actual coach, and I did a movement which put me closer to. Um, put me in the distance of Nord and then she was able to go for the score and I did something I wasn't supposed to do that we hadn't been practicing. And then from there she got the first point and then it just started to cascade. And then I was like, crap, all right, now I'm down. Now I have to go for it. And then she just started to pick me off. So that's why you just need that discipline. You know, sometimes being an athlete is just all about following the rules, being disciplined focused, maintaining that focus for the full three rounds. But, you know, we've got human nature that we're battling against and sometimes that emotion can come in. Sometimes you, you make a good decision. Sometimes you don't make a good decision. And then it just sort of starts to slip out of your control. And then you leave it more to chance that way. So that's, that's how it happened. Um, Incredible. But yeah. Just hearing that, honestly, <laughs> like, and I've got to ask like, before we let you go, three quick things. Just one thing on that. Go on. Yeah. Don't keep don't going. obviously want to like dwell on what happened for Tokyo, but like through what happened with Rio, what happened mm -hmm. with the disappointment of Tokyo, mm -hmm. going back to what you're saying about the disappointment of London, which helped you in 2013. Can you just bottle all that now, Carmen, and go screw it, <laughs> Paris, I'm gold medal. Like this is this is. I've had so much shit go down since Rio that boom, bring on bring on Paris. I mean, is that is that what you're aiming for still to go to another Olympics? Uh, so I have a few options. I'm taking the time now to really think about everything and assess everything. Uh, I would love to, to be honest, I would love to, and I know what that would take. I've, I've definitely got the benefit of having that experience and wisdom. And, you know, if we can change the culture within our sport, I'd love to finish on a high. You know, the last probably four or five years have been really tough, you know, some of the toughest in my career. Uh, so I would love to be able to finish in a more positive sense and just enjoy the sport again and be surrounded by good people, people that are empowering you and want the best for you and just have some good fights. Like we had a European tour that we were supposed to go on um, at the start of 
2000, not 2000, 2020. And we only had one competition before COVID started to really skyrocket in Europe. So we had to go back to Australia. And I had done so much work to prepare and I had the eventual gold medalist in the quarterfinal and I was winning that match and it went to golden point and she ended up winning the golden point and get, then getting the gold. So I would have loved to at least have done those two opens um, just to be able to like put into practice, like, or just put into work all the hard work that I had, had done. But we'll see. Uh, keep, I will... Um, Keep you posted. We will keep an eye out. We definitely will. And I'm going to, I'm going to end this on two quick positive things. First sure. of all, I think you're about the third or fourth guest we've had on this show who is on a Woolies Aussie Heroes sticker, and I'm glad to see <laughs> that uh, I think, was it raspberries your favourite fruit? So that's kind of always something there. And I will say, I didn't mention this at the top, but I'm going to end this on this note, you are the 100th guest ever here on Off the Podium. So. <laughs> There's some positivity to take ahead of your tilt for Paris to say that that random <laughs> podcast I did back in 2021, I was their 100th guest. They can never take that away from me. So world champion and 100th guest and off the podium. You are welcome. Put it on your resume. <laughs> that is amazing. I am so impressed. I will take that. I'm, I'm all for titles. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And it's been, you know, uh, great being here. You have done a lot of uh research which i appreciate and i hope that what we spoke about here can be valuable i hope i can come back again one day i've very much enjoyed yes. my time here always welcome back and uh all the best with your show moving forward i think that this is a great platform and if you keep getting to the nitty-gritty of it then yeah sport in australia can only keep getting better Massive, massive thanks there to Carmen and what an honour to have our 100th guest on Off the Podium, which I'm actually thrilled that we've gotten to 100 guests because we spoke recently when we spoke to Evan Dumphy about he was our first returning guest on the show and this was sort of a, a thing that we didn't always know we were going to do, bring on guests on the show. It was kind of like a nice idea, but then we were like, well, do we have the commitment? Is it something that, you know, we can easily access Olympians and ask them to come on the show? And Obviously, since Tokyo, we've kind of proved that point that it, it's been quite a journey to kind of get to our 100th guest. But uh, so, so honoured to be able to chat to anybody on this show and, and Carmen in particular as well. Such a, a great, honest, maybe one of our most honest, in-depth chats that we've ever had on this show. So we could we could fill another couple of hours, as she sort of mentioned in there, about uh, everything else to do with that, uh, what she was talking about. So really appreciate Carmen's time and we thank her very much for joining us on the show. Now that we've had 100 guests, let's go on to 100 more. We've got more guests coming your way very, very soon on Off the Podium. Stay up to date with what we're going on, of course, via social media, our podcast platforms out there, wherever you can or will listen to podcasts. You will generally find us on there. Search for Off the Podium. Subscribe. Go back and listen to our previous 99 guests. And we'd love to hear what you think about the guests, what you think about Carmen, our episodes in general. If you've got any uh, ideas of who you would like us to track down and get on the show, by all means, shoot us a message. Or, of course, if you've got any ideas for some other episodes. We've had some fun kind of discussing sports, discussing medals, discussing everything else and we've got some other great ideas to come uh, post Beijing we've got some uh, other things that uh, when things slow down a little bit uh, we've got some uh, potential ideas for future episodes as well but in the meantime thanks again to Karma thanks again to you for listening my name is Ben this is Off the Podium and as always go left